Ezra chapter 9. The Israelites had been exiled to Babylon after kings of Israel had reigned for something like 350, 400 years. They had prophets warn them generation after generation, listen, this is a privilege that you have, having a temple in Jerusalem, having a land all of your own. This is the promise that was made to Abraham. Now, uh, but, but you are using grace as a license, as we've been talking about on Sunday. You have been taking everything that God has given you and you're using it as an opportunity for the flesh. You've lost sight of who you are. And um, so finally, we saw at the, book of, at the end of the book of Second Chronicles, the Lord gave them over to judgment. The Babylonians came in for the third time, burned the temple down, burnt, took down all of the, the, the temple, and um, took back... I think it was the third uh, set of people, I wouldn't call it a set, just a group of people, prisoner, that they had been, they had already brought Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel to Babylon in a previous exile, but um, they did it for a, f a final time. And so for 70 years, they were in exile. And then at the beginning of the book of Ezra, the Persian king, Persians had defeated the Babylons by, that, by then. They were now the world ruling empire. Cyrus orders the Israelites to go back and build the temple. And then so Jerubbabel comes in. They, they eventually build the temple. There's a long interruption for a period of time, but then they come back. But then we saw, see a remarkable thing. We see that uh, in uh, last week we saw in chapter 7, there's another group of people who come back uh, to uh, Jerusalem, and it's about 58 years later, and these people come back really under Ezra for the specific purpose of strengthening the people by the word of God. And um, Ezra had been called. So pre, the first group of people to come back to Jerusalem, there was about 50,000. This time there were um, around four or 5,000. And, and they come back. God had called Ezra to come back and really teach the word of God. Now, there's no internet, there's no text messaging, there's no smoke signals, there's no way of knowing, but he, uh, perhaps word got back that things were not, uh, to him, that things were not going too well in Jerusalem, but um, he, he was called by God to go, and this is how the Lord operates. He, he, he calls you to do a specific thing, and uh, Ezra really didn't know a full confirmation of, of what 
he was going to do until um, he got there and spent a little time there. I remember when we, I was called up to return to Massachusetts from Miami. I mean, I, I knew I heard a call, but I tell you, it's a hard, hard season of life where you have to go a number of years before the Lord clearly, clearly confirms. Um, yeah, you see? I, I, I meant what I said. You were supposed to come. Well, uh, this was like Ezra. By faith he goes um, back to Jerusalem. As Zerubbabel is clearly has passed away by this time. And uh, so he, he, um, he, he gets back at the end of chapter 8, which is where we left off last week. Um, he arrives in Jerusalem. They... He gives offerings. The first thing he does, really, he offers burnt offerings to God, thanksgivings uh, to God, uh, and and but he's only there three days, and he gets news of confirming. It took a little longer than three days for me for the Lord to confirm that yeah, I was supposed to be in Boston, but he just after three days, chapter nine, verse one, says. This, again, this is right after he got there. When these things were done, the leaders came to me. This is Ezra speaking. Saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the land with respect to the abomination of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, for they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons so that the holy seed is mixed with the people of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers had been foremost in this trespass. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the uh, God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive and I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. And so, here you have it. Uh, again, there was a period of 50 years had gone by um, since the, the end of that, that first exile when they had come back to, 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 well, actually, from the end of chapter 6 to, uh, to 7, um, it was, it was, um, 58 years. So after the temple was completed, which was, uh, I, I can't remember how long it took for that temple to be com completed. It was something like 20 years. But, but um, uh, it, because there was a long interruption, 58 years goes by, and um, there had just been an enormous spiritual decline. You know, Martin Luther says this, he says, without ministers to proclaim the word of God, the people go wild like savage beasts. He, he uses language like that. 
it's um, he's a he's a really fun guy to read, uh, but it really doesn't take a whole lot of time as we've read um, and seen for a people without the teaching of the word um, to to really go south. It, it says in um, chapter nine verse one, it says that they had not separated themselves with respect to the abominations. It doesn't say exactly what the abominations were. An abomination is an exceedingly great sin. That's the definition of abomination. And the reason that they um, had gone into these abominations, whatever they were, uh, there's probably different kinds of idolatry and things like that, was because that the men had started to take the daughters of the pagan peoples um, as wives. And so it is just complete uh, sticking your head in the sand to think that you are not going to be affected if you marry someone who is an unbeliever, that you're not going to be affected um, by their worldview, whatever their religion is. Everyone's worshiping something, right? And so if something's, someone's not worshiping God, they are going to be affecting you. So uh, they had done this thing. Uh, at the end of verse 2, it says, it says that leaders and rulers had been foremost in this trespass. And uh, I tell you, I, 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 I pray that the, uh, continuously that the Lord would raise up leaders at Calvary Chapel in the city because without leaders, this is what happens. This is what happens. The people just, um, uh, there's a reason leadership is, is, is viewed in such a high light. It's because if there's not good leadership, really a whole, the whole community of people um, really, they start to to go downhill in terms of their relationship with the Lord. It says the leaders and the rulers had been foremost in this trespass. Now, when you see the word trespass in the Old Testament, um, that's an important word. It's distinguished from the word sin. I'm just talking about the whole Old Testament now. This is not the New Testament. Uh, that the New Testament is written in Greek. It's a completely different thing. But trespass in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Leviticus. I was greatly moved this time around when I, um, when, when I taught the book of Leviticus because um, just doing a deep dive into that study in Leviticus, you realize that there's one set of offerings for sin, and sin can be completely unintentional. And then there's... Um, and, and, and sin, by the way, can also just... It can just be not only unintentional, it's just the iniquity that's in you. That your flesh, we've been talking about on Sunday, it's just there, it's sin. It's not, it, 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 but, then, but, but then there's, there's trespass, which is intentional. And there are different offerings in the book of Leviticus, one for trespass offerings and the other for sin offerings. And it gives me so much comfort that Jesus Christ fulfilled both of them. Because at some point in your Christian life, I hope, I hope this is said of everyone in this room, you stop the trespassing nonsense. Like intentionally walking into sin. That's not something I do every day, every week. I, I hope even 
I don't even know in the last year that I'm intentionally walking into sin. But sin, absolutely. In my thought life, oh my. I, I, I will realize five minutes into a bad stream of thought that, whoa, Steve, you're, you're really in sin the way you're thinking about that person, blah, blah, blah. Jesus Christ died for both of them. He fulfilled But It was so comforting teaching that in Leviticus this time around. I don't know what the first time around I, I got that deep. But um, this time I, uh, I did. But this is a trespass here. This is intentional sin. They know it's sin and they go into it. It's intentional um, sin. And uh, so this is really a serious situation. I don't think it's any coincidence that we're in the book of Ezra after last Sunday's sermon which it was just so moving in my heart. Um, the 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 last Sunday sermon, uh, which was Galatians six verse one, it says, "Brethren, a man is when a man is overtaken in trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering lest you you also be tempted." And so. We talked about the right attitude towards people who sin. Remember that? And I was just really moved at my own wicked heart <laughs> when I'm thinking about oftentimes my reaction towards someone who sins. And I, I, and I have been, I do pray a lot about this issue uh, well before um, last Sunday studying for it, but it really, really brought it home. When someone sins against you or sins generally, there is death. James chapter 1 says, that is at work deep in their soul. And so we shouldn't be getting angry at them. We should be just really, really hurting for them. That is the right attitude towards sin when we see sin in another person. That's a Christ-like attitude. Well, today we have an example of someone who has a, a spirit filled response to sin. He says, when I heard this thing, verse 3, again, that they had been marrying the women of foreign, um, um, of pagan people, and, the, and these, are, these are not proselytes, by the way. These are, not, these are not Gentile women who converted to Judaism. Because None of this would be written if that's all it was. There's not a problem at all with a Jew marrying someone who had converted to being a Jew. These are people, these are women who had continued, just like Solomon's wives, their worship of pagan gods. He said, when I heard this thing, verse 3, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. Chapter 10, verse 1 says that included praying, confessing, and weeping. So he's weeping as well. You know, I, God forbid it that we as a people at Calvary Chapel in the city just get used to carnal Christianity. Like we see it, we shrug our heads, and we just walk, walk on. 
it should grieve you to the bottom of your soul, to the depths of your soul. And if it doesn't, just ask the Lord, Lord, please change me. It's, it's really a wonderful picture of what's going on here. This is a man who greatly fears God, loves God. You know, the church is called the body of Christ. Uh, uh, in my memorization, I memorized Ephesians 5. It says, we're the flesh of his flesh, the bone of his bones. And to see people in the body of Christ just going out and living a carnal life and looking not that much different at all from a slightly Christianized version of the world, I hope it grieves your spirit tremendously. And this is a picture of a very, very godly man here. This is a picture of, you know, this is, it, and, and by the way, it's not supposed to be some extraordinary thing. This should be our response, your response and mine, when we see this kind of transgression right in the body of Christ. You know, in political season, when there was just such outrageous behavior in, in the Christian community, just hateful, hateful, despising words by Christians and Christian leaders about, um, about political candidates and this type of thing, completely unjustified. I gotta tell you, it just grieved my spirit so tremendously. And a holy people will be, um, will have such a response when they see just carnal Christianity. Um, notice here that he's not, he doesn't, you never see Ezra here. His, he's not picking, he, 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 he's not all mad at the world. He's not just criticizing the world. It's what I call cursing the darkness. It drives me crazy when Christians sit around and post on Facebook or Instagram or wherever all day about how terrible the world is. The world is just acting the way it is because it, they're dead. What do you more do you expect than that from a dead man? And why are you frothing at the mouth at something the world is doing? They're just doing what their flesh what the flesh does. The flesh flushes out. The, 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 our, our heart should be uh, should uh, w you know when we when we really get upset is when we see the Christian church in um, complete carnality here. And so this is really, um, you know, when you see a, a Christian carnality um, or, or, or Christians in sin, uh, just a combination of being upset that the body of Christ, this wonderful picture to the world that's supposed to make the world attractive to Jesus is doing the very opposite and just really grieving over that and crying out to the Lord and interceding as we'll see that he's going to do. But also just sin generally when a Christian sins. Just, um, it's, 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 you don't get the picture that Ezra here is angry at individuals. He's, he's a godly man. And, and as we were speaking about on Sunday, um, just knowing that death is at work in that person, that man, that woman, who has sinned against you, or 
they may not have nothing to do against you. They're just sinning. And just re remembering that that's death. James chapter 1 says that when sin is conceived, death begins to work in, in, in a Christian soul. And, um, and just being broken up about that. Wow. I mean, what that would do for marriages. <laughs> If a Christian, I'm talking about Christian marriages. If a, if you saw that sin in your in, in your wife, and 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 it just, wow, oh Lord, there's death at work in her. Or you see that sin in your husband, there's death at work in him. I need to pray for him. I need to minister to him. There's death at work there. There's something there, and just that heart that hurts for the people of God. It says in Matthew chapter 9 that Jesus, when he saw the multitude, he became full of compassion. And it says, it, it has a word that there's like a physical, in his bowels, there's like a physical reaction because he saw that the people, they were harassed in their soul, they, they're sheep without a shepherd. And that's Jesus' reaction to a people who, um, that, that, that they're in sin. They're, they don't know God, but they, that there's a desire for God, but they're, they're just in this place of, of carnality. The specific sin here, intermarriage with unbelievers. In, in Deuteronomy, it says, you shall not make marriages with unbelievers. It actually lists out most of... Um, these nations that are listed here in Deuteronomy, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And here they are um, again. They had married them. It actually adds Moabites and Egyptians there. And uh, I've really been into Ephesians chapter 5 um, for about the last six weeks, just really praying it on a regular basis. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become flesh. But then, verse 32, here's... This is an amazing verse. I tell you a mystery. I speak concerning Christ and the church. And just this morning, in my devotion time, I read it, Isaiah 62, verse 5, which says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. That picture... that marriage presents to the world... A Christian marriage is supposed to present to the world which is a type of God loving his people, his children, whether, his, uh, whether it's his church or whether it's just an individual. And if you really start meditating on it, then you see why it is Ezra's flipping out 
This is just one of the most important, profound, deep, biblical types, marriage. You know, Steffi and I were um, talking for a long time yesterday <laughs> about 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and, and Jesus in, in Matthew, is it 18? I think it's 18, where he, it, it says that it, unless a man, unless there's fornication, a man divorces his wife and goes and marries another, he, he, he is then an adulterer. He's like in a continual state of adultery. And that is a picture of that was given by God to us of just unrepentant sinners just abusing the marriage covenant and doing with it whatever they want. Because the Pharisees were just getting giving out certificates of divorce for whatever reason. He says, well, let me, let me tell you what it looks like to me. With each new wife you take on after you get a divorce, it's like you're, you're, it's in a continue, you're causing that person to be an adulterer. Your new wife to be an adulteress. And so that gives you a picture of why it says he's just this very godly man. Oh, I, I have to say one more thing. You know, when, in, it, when we're introduced to Ezra in chapter 7, it says that Ezra, who, by the way, was a direct descendant of Aaron, the brother of Moses, he's a direct descendant of Aaron, it says that he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses. Now, when I hear something like that, when I hear, oh, he's a skilled scribe, in the law of Moses, you know, because we have so many pictures in the New Testament of, of Jesus and scribes, you just, you know, you, it's like this angry, like, Jewish scribe. But that's not, obviously, not what this guy is like. It, that's not what, if, if someone really is serious about the law of Moses, they know what Jesus knows, right? The greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second one is like it, meaning they're really interrelated. Love your neighbor as yourself. It says, it, it, it says that Ezra was weeping, chapter 10, verse 1. That's not one of these angry scribes that Jesus is talking to. This is a guy who not only he was skilled in the commandments, but he lived it. He was filled with the Spirit. It says that he it says at the end of verse 3, he sat down astonished. He plucked out some of the hair of his head and beard. I gotta tell you, plucking out your own hair? Man, how do you do that? Maybe someday someone can do that at the talent show. <laughs> so no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but I, I, I mean, that's I don't know how someone does that. He plucks out some of his head and his beard. He's weeping. It's a man of God. This is someone who I want to be like. I want to have this attitude towards sin. At the end of verse four, it says, "I sat astonished." 
until evening sacrifice. It does say that everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel, beginning of verse 4, assembled with him. So I think this is probably the people who came with him, who were like-minded. They knew who Ezra was. They knew who he, what he was like. So this is not the people who were already there, the 50,000, the descendants of the 50,000 who had come, what was it, like 70 years earlier or something like that, 70, 75 years earlier. This is the, this is the new set of people who, um, who were greatly saddened. Says he sat astonished. You know the other thing that I that it's well. I I, I better go on, or else we'll never finish to the Ezra tonight. At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting, and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. Now the next thing you see here is a prayer. Whenever you see a prayer, oh wow, take notes and imitate it, pray it for yourself and your church and your pastor and your people, um, your city. We can all pray this exact same prayer for the city of Boston. Just every time you see a prayer like this, they're all fabulous, all of them. Nehemiah's going to have one too. He says, oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift my face to you, my God. In other words, God, he knew how good and gracious that God had been to Israel. It's not a guy faking it. This is really in his heart. Oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has grown, has grown up to the heavens. And so he's not trying to minimize. You know when repentance is real, by the way, when you know if people are not making excuses or trying to minimize their sin. Verse 7, since the days of our father to this day, we have been very guilty. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hands of kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation as it is this day. And now for a little while, while grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape, meaning escape Babylon, and to give us a peg in his holy place. I think the holy place in there probably doesn't mean the temple. It means um, Jerusalem. So we've been given this little peg, this little place in Jerusalem, in this, the land which we formerly known as Israel, that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. Notice how he says we. Obviously, he had not participated in it, but this is what's called standing in the gap. We have forsaken your commandments. 
which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the land, with their abominations which they have filled it from one end to the other with impurity. Now therefore, do not give your daughters as wives for their sons. He's just quoting Deuteronomy here. Do not give your daughters as wives for their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong in the and eat of the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserves and have given us such deliverance as this, should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people, committing these abominations, would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that there would be no remnant nor survivor? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant as it is to this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. Oh man, that's an awesome prayer. So what he's saying, we got kicked out of this land once because we married with pagans and took on their practices and we got delivered to Babylon we're punished for it in your mercy you let us back and here we are doing again you can torch us right now Lord if you do we deserve it <laughs> that's sort of what he's praying here and again I think of Ezra saying that he's astonished And perhaps he's thinking of the stories that he heard of the Babylonians, which they had no respect for life whatsoever. You know, Christians are salt in the United States right now. They have a respect for life. We don't believe in abortion. We don't believe in infanticide, meaning once a person's a human, we don't believe in... in at, at this time, though... Abortion and fantasy, that was nothing. People could be killed for anything. Slaves could be killed, piece of property, wives had no rights and could, uh, could be... Uh, I want to be, be careful and, and, and not try to exaggerate. I mean, there, there, there would have been certain laws, but, but, the, but the, 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 um, the respect for life of in terms of what the Babylonians and the Persians uh, would have been practically, it would make our country look like Snow White. <laughs> and the Babylonians had come into Jerusalem slaughtering everyone, burning down the temple, The women are probably being violated. The babies thrown against rocks, this type of thing you read about in the Old Testament with pagan enemies coming in. Ezra's heard all these stories. And now he comes into Jerusalem because they had been given a chance by the Lord. They'd been given a second chance. It's more than a second chance. It's more like a thousandth chance 
And here they are again doing the same thing. After all the grace and mercy that had been granted to them. And he just says, we're here, we're guilty. <laughs> if, if you judge us, if you rain down fire on us like you did Sodom and Gomorrah, we completely deserve it. Chapter 10, verse 1 says, Now when Ezra was praying and while he was confessing and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept very bitterly. So I think at this time, people who had not recently come started joining. Yeah, I, I will say this to you all who are, are present this evening, and I really mean this. I hope when you walk into a room and there's carnal Christianity going on, I'm talking about behavior by Christians. I'm not talking about the world. Just Christians behaving carnally in some way, one way or another. I hope you make them feel really uncomfortable. I, I, I really mean that. I hope you know, one of the things that Stephanie and I have been talking a lot, you, 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 you speak a lot about grace in the book of Galatians. It's like nine months of grace. And I'm a graceaholic. I love teaching about grace and experiencing grace. But not one tiny bit of the teaching means that you have license to be a carnal Christian or to violate anything, any trespass. Do any trespass, any intentionally. I'm just, I know this is wrong. I'm just going to sin. And so if you walk into a room and, 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 and there's a bunch of Christians hanging around and they're watching a movie and all of a sudden people start joking about sex outside of marriage um, or just treating it as normal. You not only have my permission, you have the Holy Spirit's permission. I'm sorry, I don't want to be hit by lightning now by saying this. To say, what are you guys, what are you guys looking at this movie for? Or if, so, if you walk into a, a place and they're just people are just gossiping or criticizing. Or hey, hey, guys, this is like really carnal. <laughs> and 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 uh, yeah, the, I have to say this. Um, if you're walking by the Spirit, and Jeremy had the notes last week. I was so impressed. I told him I was impressed. I hope everyone follows his example. He pulled them up. Number one, what's walking in the Spirit? Number one, it's being surrendered to the Spirit. Number two, it's listening to the voice of the Spirit. And number three, it's being strengthened by the Spirit. If you're walking by the Spirit, Carnal Christians won't like you. They'll start gossiping about you. They'll be calling you a Pharisee. They will be calling you legalistic. They will undermine you. They will tell lies about you. <laughs> Draw your strength from the Lord. And just like Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, 
rejoice and be glad because they did the same thing to the prophets. <laughs> they spoke evil of them. And by the grace of God, that's not what happened here. And by the grace of God, there will be times where, where people get convicted by you all just taking a stand for holiness. We're supposed to be a holy people. The world is not going to be drawn to a compromised people. The world is not going to be drawn to a slightly Christianized version of itself. They're not going to be drawn to that. But here's a really holy guy. And guess what? People repent. And they, they may also, when you uh, make a big, I don't want to say a big stink, because he's not making a stink. He's just, what he's doing, he's just, in a very spirit-led way, he's letting it be known, those people are in sin. It says a large, very large assembly of men and women and children, circle that word, children, like children are affected, gathered to him from Israel for the people wept very bitterly. Now this is a good thing. Charles Finney, who, um, wasn't it last week where I said, I talked about the three most important books, or was I somewhere else? That was here? So my number three on the list, and hopefully we're going to get to this, is the autobiography on Thursday night. The the autobiography um, of Charles Finney is in the top um, three in my opinion, but um, the long version. There's a short version. Oh, it's a tragedy when someone cut it in half. But one of the things that Charles Finney says, and it, he doesn't say it in this particular book, he, 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 he has another book. It's called um, Lectures in, on Revival. And he has a whole chapter on that's entitled Do Not Comfort a Sinner. <laughs> And when you look at it, you're like, what does that mean? But when you read it, what he says is, when someone is genuinely repentant, don't go to them and say, really, you're not that bad. You're not so bad, really. Saying, don't do that. The Holy Spirit's doing a genuine work in their life. And besides, it's actually much worse than they think. (laughs) And and so um, um, it's one of the things that Charles Finney says. And and so you don't, they're weeping very bitterly, and you don't see Ezra going to him here. Oh, really? Come on, you're taking it a little bit too seriously. No. This is genuine repentance, and they're really broken about what they're doing. And so now we're going to get into, let, let, let's continue to read here. Th- this, these are some difficult things to understand that are coming up here, but um, we'll try, to, we'll, we'll try to, to work through them. It says, And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the people of the land, yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Now that's great that he says, yet there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Why? Well, he must know something about the Lord. The Bible says God not only is merciful, it says he delights in giving mercy. 
He delights, Micah 7, 7, he delights in giving mercy. He loves to give mercy. Verse 3, now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my master and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leaders of the, pri- of the priests, the Levites, and all Israel swear an oath that they would do according to this word. So they swore an oath. Then Ezra rose up before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehoahan, Jehohanan, I won't try it again, the son of Eliashib. And when he came there, he ate no bread and drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those from the captivity from the captivity, that means that they had been captive in the land of Babylon and now that they, they were come, came back to Israel. Verse 7, And they issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the descendants of the captivity that they must gather at Jerusalem and that whoever would not come within three days according to the instructions of the leaders and elders all his property would be confiscated and he himself would be separated from the assembly of those from the captivity. Verse 9, so all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month of the 20th of the month and all the people sat in the open square of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. So it's pouring rain. This is a very interesting scene. It's pouring rain. I I believe God was doing something. I'm not exactly sure with that rain. I'm not exactly sure what. But verse 10, the Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have transgressed and have taken pagan wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore, make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will. Separate yourselves from the people of the land and from, and from the pagan wives. Then all the assembly answered and said with a loud voice, yes, as we, as you have said, so we must do. But there are are many people, it is the season for heavy rain, and we are not able to stand outside, nor is this the work of one or two days, for there are many of us who have transgressed in this matter. Please let the leaders of our entire assembly stand, and let all those in our cities who have taken pagan wives come at appointed times, together with the elders and the judges of their cities, until the fierce wrath of our God is turned away from us in this matter. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jehazai, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, and Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, gave them support. Then the descendants of the captivity did so, and Ezra the priest, with certain heads of the father's household, were set apart by the father's households, each of them by name, and they sat down on the first day of the tenth month to examine the matter. By the first day of the first month, they finished questioning all the men 
who had taken pagan wives. And so then they list out here, this is in verse 18, among the sons of the priests who had uh, taken pagan wives, the following were found of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Josadak and his brothers, Messiah, Eleazar, Jerob, and Gedaliah. And they gave their promise that they would put away their wives and being guilty, they presented a ram offering of the flock as their trespass. And so then they list out um, the other priests who had taken pagan wives. And then verse 24, also the singer, singers, so the worship team had gotten involved, Le- Le- Levites. And then um, verse 25, it just talks about others. And it says in verse 44, all the way, the last verse of the chapter, all these had... Um, had taken pagan wives, and some of them had wives by whom, whom they had um, had children. And so, let's talk about this. What are, what, are, what are we to make of this extraordinary chapter here, where Ezra, who is a very spiritual man, orders this um, these guys to put away their wives. Now, again, these were wives who were actively worshiping other gods. They had refused to, uh, to become Jews. Verse 19, it says they put away. So there's no mention of divorce here. So they separated them. If you look at the law, laws in, in, I believe, Deuteronomy, there's, in, in, uh, there's simil- there, there are laws about taking care of, of wives where some kind of thing had happened where a man didn't want the woman anymore. He still had to care for her for the rest of their life. There's every reason to believe they supported these women um, um, for the rest of their lives. But, uh, you know, I will say this. um, This is not something that I think would have any application in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, in a New Covenant believer, the New Covenant believer. In fact, Stephanie and I were just talking yesterday. We weren't even thinking I was going to be talking about this tonight. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it says, do not put away an unbeliever um, um, if, if you're married to one. You cannot get a divorce. It specifically says that. I think this was something that was uniquely to, uh, unique to Israel, I personally am a dispensationalist in my theology, <laughs> and by that I mean there are different dispensations of time, including the 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 Bible um, deals with people prior to is God deals with people in a certain unique way prior to, for example, Moses, but then with Israel he deals with them in a specific way when it's just Israel, but then and um in with Christians, he deals with people in a, a, a specific way. So I do think there are certain things about Israel. For example, we don't follow any of the ceremonial laws as Christians. But um, I think this was unique to Israel, but it really was something that God wanted. One of the, God wanted to happen, I, I, I really do believe that. One of the reasons is if you look at... Um, let me see. Exodus 
in verse 2 of chapter 9, it says, they have taken some of their daughters as wives so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Keep in mind, there was a promise that the Messiah would come through Israel. And so if Israel doesn't stay Israel, there's not going to be a Messiah. And so something unique was going on with Israel. Nevertheless, I think our, the application for us is, number one, of course, don't get married to an unbeliever. If you're not familiar with the verse, some of you have probably heard it a hundred times. Um, and if so, I'm sorry about the hundred and first time. It does say, do you... 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, do not be unequally yoked to, together with an unbeliever. And then it goes on to say, for what agreement has the temple of God with idols? You are the temple of God. <laughs> it says that very specifically in 1 Corinthians 3 and 6, you are the temple of God. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? So number one, um, that's an obvious application from this. But the other application is repentance is sometimes extremely hard. Sometimes repentance is really, really hard. That's why Jesus refers to it in Mark 9 as cutting off a foot, cutting off a hand, plucking out an eye. Sometimes it's hard. Radical things need to be done. I really respect some of the guys over the years who said, I have an issue with, with addiction. I'm just going to leave my job, leave all my friends, and I'm going to go to a Calvary Chapel U-turn center for six months. We've had a number of guys do that. I Tremendous respect for people who just acknowledge, I'm going to have to do this. But so often times where, where, when folks are presented with, look, it's pretty obvious here, your repentance has to be radical. There's like this mad dash to try to figure out an easier way. But sometimes... It's the, the only, only way to repent is to really be cutting off an eye, plucking out an, uh, cut, uh, plucking out an eye, cutting off a hand or foot, and it's really, really hard. And I'm, one, I'm in one of those conversations about every third week, just pleading with someone. Look, you really have to cut this part of your life out. And so um, this guy Ezra, a tremendous example to us of someone who comes in and, uh, and, 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 and really he, he brings the life of God back to Israel. He puts Israel again in a place that they can actually be fruitful and be used by God and attract the world to God and be attractive um, um, to the world. And, and that's where, where the Lord wants all of us. He wants us in that place of 
fruitfulness. And it just takes a, really a, a radical life of, of, uh, 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 of just obeying the word of God. I shouldn't say radical. Like Watchman Nee says, the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life is just obeying the word of God. And, 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 but in order to be fruitful. So Ezra puts them in a place once again. This is the power of a man who just really loves the Lord. It's a demonstration. He puts really a whole community, a whole nation again in a place where it can be fruitful. But let's... Um, Let's uh, let us pray for the last uh, whatever ten minutes now here. Just have a time of prayer. Why don't you pray for yourself and get into little groups of two, three, or four? Just specifically, this whole thing we talked about at the beginning. Lord, use me like. You use Ezra, use me as an agent of change in the midst of, of whatever group I happen to be with. And Lord, if I'm in a situation, when I'm in a situation where there's carnal Christianity, whether it's in my own house or whether it's at church or a group outside of church, Lord, I want the boldness. I want to do this, Lord. I want to have the same effect that Ezra had, where uh, in his case, the people didn't start chop chopping his ears off, as sometimes carnal Christians do. It says the people actually changed.